I think my favorite thing about them would have, yeah, it pretty much has to be the fact that they make such beautiful, intricate skeletons for seemingly no apparent reason. And it just takes my breath away to see how incredibly delicate such a tiny organism can make its functional parts, I guess. I mean, probably people feel the same about the wonders of the human body or something like this, but it's just mind-boggling. It's like seeing a beautiful sculpture, but it's so microscopic and the it's, it's just mind-blowing. Welcome to episode 4 of This is Science, Expedition 378. I'm Claire. Every time there are dolphins outside of the ship, we run and have a look. Everybody loves dolphins. These big marine creatures splashing about, jumping, having fun. I mean, even the bridge calls out sometimes over the intercom. Dolphins on the starboard bow. And you just see a stream of people heading outside. The term is charismatic. They are charismatic marine mammals. Charismatic megafauna. But actually, up in the labs of the Droides Resolution, there is the same kind of stoke for tiny microfossils. Or for chemical analysis of sediments from the past. Now, microfossils are made up of tiny little creatures, well, the skeletons of tiny little creatures that used to drift around in the ocean. And they live tiny, boring lives. About a day or so. And and then they die, and their skeletons drift to the seafloor. They aren't really that exciting, like dolphins, or tigers, or even insect-eating plants, which are kind of cool. So I found it hard to get excited at the start by the thought of tiny flakes of chalk dust drifting down and getting squished into mud. I didn't think that they would be all that interesting. Until I met the scientists who studied them. For example, Rosie, who you heard in the intro. My name is Rosie. I am one of the scientists on board the JR on Expedition 378. I am a British scientist, but I currently live and work in Germany at the Goethe Universität. And on the ship, I'm working as one of the micropaleontologist teams. So I'm specializing in what we call calcareous nanofossils. So the very, very, very tiny fossils that we see in the seafloor sediments. And my job on the ship is to look at what's in the samples as they come up and to try to use what we see in those samples to give an estimate of how old the sediment is as it comes on deck. Uh, I have a degree in meteorology and oceanography, actually, which is 
not the most common route into paleontology, so the study of fossils, or into geology. Um, but I was very interested in the oceans and I really loved weather, so I decided I wanted to be a meteorologist. But during my degree, I found out about phytoplankton that live in the ocean. So these are the very tiny little plants that you can't really see, but they are really, really, really abundant in the oceans. And the thing that got me excited about them was the fact that you could study those and through that get lots of information about what the physical and chemical conditions of the oceans are and how the oceans interact with the atmosphere. And you can look at that on lots of different time scales, lots of different spatial scales. So you don't have to specialize in anything. You can just study everything, but through the window of this one organism group. So I fell in love with them and decided to do a PhD in that. Okay, so before we go on to learn about coccolithophores, what are phytoplankton? Um, in the ocean, the phytoplankton are the very bottom of the food chain, but they're all really small. So most of them are really tiny plants that are maybe just a single cell or a small cluster of cells. But they work in the same way as land plants. They take energy from the sun and they transform that into their organic material. But we don't tend to see them because they're so tiny. The ocean's full of them in the surface tens to hundreds of meters, um, but we don't really see them. So a lot of people don't really realize that they're there and they're fueling all the life in the oceans. And actually, um, phytoplankton produce just as much oxygen as all the land plants, but you don't really realize it. So something that somebody once said to me was every second breath you take, you can thank the phytoplankton for that because they're producing a lot of oxygen. There's a lot of different types of phytoplankton and they come in all shapes and sizes and some of them have these hard parts and um, some make them from carbon-based minerals. Other groups use things like silica and some are just organic. So there's a lot of diversity and um, people tend to specialize in, in one group particularly and I chose the coccolithophores, uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, uh, I will admit. Uh, but for me, that the fact that they make these carbonate skeletons is really exciting because it gives you another dimension that you can study as to how they interact with their environment. Things like these carbon cycle dynamics. Um, also for me, some of the species in the coccolithophores, they produce some compounds that when they get into the air, they interact with the clouds. And so there's this air-sea interaction that I find really exciting. It's not something I study uh, personally, but because I had this degree in meteorology, anything to do with atmospheric processes is also really cool. So they may be tiny, but they have this huge impact on the Earth system from all different angles. And how do these phytoplankton get into the sediment? So when the cells living in the surface ocean, when they die, or if they're eaten by some of the very tiny animals that live in the ocean, they'll eventually make their way by sinking through the water column to the seafloor. And if you're on the coastlines, that's maybe only 100 meters, a couple of hundred meters. In the deep ocean, which is where we are right now, there's several kilometers of seawater. So it takes a really long time, but they do sink through the water and they gradually accumulate on the seafloor over many hundreds of thousands and millions of years. 
And so when we take a core out of the seafloor, it's just completely full of these little bits of fossils of all of the phytoplankton groups. Um, and they can be particularly abundant in the ones that I study because they're so small. Um, they tend to occur in really high numbers in the ocean. So we get thousands and thousands of fossils in every tiny little gram of sediment. The first cores that we recovered on Expedition 378 were white and quite soft with like little speckles. Think vanilla bean ice cream and you've got an exact picture of how it looked. The scientists referred to this as nanofossil ooze and it's vanilla ice cream white because it's mostly made up of many, many, many calcium carbonate skeletons. Now, as we went deeper, the white color stayed, but the skeletons got further compressed and hardened. And so we moved into nanofossil chalk. And now eventually with time and the right kind of pressure, this kind of sediment would become limestone. Limestone made of millions and millions and millions of these tiny fossils. And this is the power of phytoplankton. They're small, but super plentiful. Every microscope slide would have maybe 100,000 individual coccoliths on it. So, yeah, we're talking huge numbers of little little bits. I mean, every, every coccolithophore cell is only about a quarter of the size of the width of a human hair. So we're talking super tiny. Um, but they can get so abundant um, that you can see them from space. So satellite images will pick up blooms of coccolithophores because all of the little plates that they make around the cell, the, the, the coccoliths we call them, um, when they get loose in the water, they can act like very tiny mirrors and so they reflect the light. So when they're really abundant, you'll get these really blue, white, milky features on satellite images. And that's just these tiny little single-celled organisms, but they're there in millions of cells per liter. And so you can see them from space. And if you've ever been anywhere where you've got big chalk cliffs or something like this, that is just hundreds of thousands of years worth of accumulation of coccolithophore remains. So at certain times in Earth history, they've been really abundant to the extent that you can form hundreds of meters of chalk from their remains. So they're tiny, but they have such a huge impact because they're there in really high numbers. When I first met Rosie, she explained to me what coccolithophores are, and I had never seen them before. And she had this metaphor for them that it's like they go to tremendous effort to design and create the most beautiful white wedding dress just to go to the pub for a night. Because even though they live really short lives, these single, single-celled tiny creatures come in all kinds of elaborate shapes and designs? Uh, they take on so many different types of shapes and forms. Uh, the thing that always astounds me is that you've got this organism that is so, so tiny, and yet 
they produce the most intricate and beautiful geometric shapes of the carbonate that they cover their cells with. And some of those little plates are really tiny, and yet they have these incredibly delicate little features in like small holes or crosses in the middle. Some of them have like really big spines or look like big vases that come out of the side of it. Um, it's just incredible how detailed the structure is, even though these things are maybe only a few microns across, which is a millionth of a, a meter. Uh, people have ideas um, about why they calcify in the first place. So things like um, defense against being eaten or to help with buoyancy control or um, to help to, to help stop too much light getting into the cell and damaging the cell organs. But in terms of why they couldn't just choose a really simple form for that, whatever was easiest and fastest to produce, we don't really have any answers. Um, it To me, it makes no sense to go so crazy with different designs um, because you would just choose the simplest route. Um, so I don't know. So on the ship... Rosie is part of that team that gets a sample of the sediment straight away so that she can help with the dating. Well, the first thing when the core comes on deck is that the micropaleontology team will be given what's called the core catcher. So it's the very bottom piece of the core. And we, we go out onto the catwalk and get it in a little bowl and then we bring it into the lab. And for me, because what I look at is so very tiny, I just need a really small amount of that material. And all I do is I'll uh, scoop it or scrape it off the surface of the sediment, depending on how hard it is, uh, with a little toothpick, literally a wooden toothpick. It's not high-tech stuff. And I add a little drop of water to that and just spread it into a very thin layer on a microscope slide. I put a cover on it. And then we take it to the microscope and we look at it about a thousand times magnified so that we can see uh, what the features of the different species in there are like. And the microscope that we use has what's called cross-polarization on it. So it's a way of looking at calcite where all the calcite goes very white and everything, everything else is dark. Um, so this means that all the cockliffs that I'm interested in are basically the only thing that you see in there. And it's a bit like looking into space because you've got all of these beautiful bright specks shining out at you um, and everything else is in darkness. So it's incredibly beautiful to look at. And usually because it takes only a few minutes to prepare the sample uh, for what I look at, I'm pretty much the first person on the ship that gets to see the material and what's in it as it comes up onto the ship which is really cool it's an incredible privilege everybody else has to process their samples a little bit and i can i can get the first sneak peek as it were it's great after the expedition what rosie would like to do is to study the size of these single cell critters because this will help her figure out what was going on in the ocean environment at that time most of the work that I do is looking at questions related to cell size, because if you're a phytoplankton cell and you're very, very small, pretty much everything about how you function is influenced, at least in some way, by how big you are. 
So your ability to take up nutrients is affected by how big you are. You'll be less efficient if you're big. You'll be more efficient if you're small. But you're, the amount that you need to take up is also affected by your size, things like this. And so cell size can be a really good way of looking at a lot of big ecological and biogeochemical questions but through one measurement effectively. So when I get off the ship, my hope is that I can take the samples that we've collected and I can reconstruct what the size of those communities were 20 to 30 million years ago. And through that, understand how the environment is affecting the different types of communities that arise at different times and how those differences then affect things like carbon production and export and carbonate um, and also how it affects the interactions with other phytoplankton groups. Rosie loves being able to see into this tiny hidden world and to see these tiny creatures and understand their importance for the earth. Something she reckons maybe a lot of people aren't even aware of. Yeah, people probably have no idea um, that there's this entire microscopic world out there in the oceans that every time you go swimming in the ocean, you're swimming through miniature forests or grasslands, as it were of all of these, this microscopic diversity. Um, certainly when I've shown people what I study for the first time, most people have no idea that they exist. And why would you? Because you're never gonna see them. Um, so I think, I think it's just really wonderful that you've got something that is so important in the earth system and the functioning of marine ecosystems that most people on the planet are completely oblivious to, but they're really working hard away behind the scenes, keeping your oceans functioning. Um, and I think that's really great. And it's, it's so amazing when you get to show that. But tiny critters aren't the only things that scientists on board are stoked about. Passionate conversations over lunch discuss ocean current changes and detailed chemical analyses and evolutionary markers, sea surface temperature proxies, the power of isotopic analysis to tell us about Earth's history. These people are so into these piles of old rocks and dirt. And even dust. What I'm really interested in is looking at dust and volcanic ash and how that has changed through time. Remember Anne Dunley, the biogeochemist from episode three? Well, Anne got into this topic during her PhD. One of my main motivations is figuring out how the climate system works. And during my PhD, my project was looking at well, like where sediment came from. And a lot of people will look at a specific grain size or only one part. And I was looking at uh, the bulk sediment way out in the South Pacific gyre. So like the center of the South Pacific, about as far away from land as you can get. And all of our geochemistry and our statistical modeling and a whole bunch of literature was suggesting that a large component of that was volcanic ash, but it had been altered and changed uh, so it didn't look like volcanic ash ever, anymore. And so during my PhD work, I realized how important volcanic ash was to the marine sediment record and how frequently it was overlooked and misunderstood or misinterpreted or 
uh, just kind of yeah, neglected, if you will. <laughs> uh, but volcanic ash and volcanism are such an essential part of the climate system that this volcanic ash part of the sediment seemed incredibly important and was not getting the attention I felt it should. And how do volcanoes contribute to climate? Well, it turns out in a lot of different ways. For example, it's believed that the greatest mass extinction that the Earth has ever seen, the end of the Permian period 250 million years ago, was due to a massive volcanic eruption that rapidly altered Earth's climate. And this is not just a question about the long-distant past. I think in 1991, Mount Pinatubo erupted, and uh, the Earth, the global climate was cooler for a couple of years. And that, so that was one eruption that affected Earth for a couple of years and Earth's climate system. Uh, volcanoes emit gas. They emit volcanic ash. They can create clouds. Uh, they can fertilize photosynthesis in the ocean um, and reflect sunlight or, you know, keep heat in. Uh, so there, it's, it's linked in many different ways. And uh, some of mass extinction events are also credited to large amounts of volcanism. So it's linked into life and habitability questions as well. For this expedition, Anne is also keen to investigate the effects of dust. Because it turns out, this was an important time for the aridification of Australia. So, cue lots of dust. In the time period that we're looking at on this cruise, it started off where Australia was not a desert. It was much more humid and moist, and it used to be connected to Antarctica. And then it broke away and migrated north, and as it did so, became a desert. And so with a desert, you get more dust into the ocean and dust in the atmosphere, and that can play into climate interactions in so many different ways. Uh, it can reflect sunlight and change how much sunlight's making it in. It can create clouds, which can also reflect sunlight or keep heat in. Uh, it can fertilize the ocean with uh, nutrients for plankton. And so those that'll cause photosynthesis, drying down CO2. Um, so there's uh, all these ways that dust interacts with climate. You can hear the passion in Anne and Rosie's voices. They both got into these topics during their PhDs and have just continued to pursue them because of what they can tell us about the climate of the past. And they are just two of the scientists on board. There are so many other topics that the people around me speak about with the same level of intensity and excitement. So all of these scientists are here because they're into what they do. And I gotta tell you, it's infectious. I find myself caring about things that I didn't even know existed before this expedition. They're all so keen to contribute more knowledge to what we know, and to unlock more of Earth's secrets. This enthusiasm for a topic, this passion, that's what motivates and drives scientists. That is science. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of This is Science, Expedition 378. I'm Claire Kincannon, a Science Outreach Projects Coordinator at Otago Museum in Dunedin, New Zealand. This podcast is brought to you by the International Ocean Discovery Programme, and especially the Australian-New Zealand Consortium of the Programme, who are supporting me to be here. Thanks also to GNS Science New Zealand and Otago Museum for their support. The intro music was created by the amazing Molly Devine. Check out her new music on Spotify. And the audio beds were created by the super talented Perry Hyde. Thanks so much, Perry. If you enjoyed this episode, please spread the word about it. Tell your family, your friends, your pets, your neighbours, and make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss the next one. You can find out more about the Geordies Resolution and Expedition 378 at www.geordiesresolution.org. See you next time. Kakiteano.